0: Hey everyone, just before the podcast starts, I wanted to tell you that uh, we're starting a new thing on our Patreon where uh, people and guests have a few extra questions at the end of the podcast that I ask them and provide as a patron-only bonus. Um, You should go to patreon.com backslash H-E-G-E-L-B-O-N, that's Hagelbon, and that's the no-cartridge-audio Patreon. If you donate $5 or more, You will uh, get access to all of these bonuses. They're about 15 minutes for every single podcast. So there's about, I don't know, 30 to 40 minutes per week. Um, And, you know, maybe more or less every time. And some, you know, bonus episodes. There's all sorts of stuff you'll be able to get. But just head on over. There'll be some extra stuff from Felix this week um, and uh, more to come from there. So thanks so much and enjoy the show. Welcome to No Cartridge Audio. My name is Trevor Strunk, Hagelbon on Twitter, and I'm very pleased to have with me today um, Felix Biederman, uh, at By Your Logic, and one, um, I guess, one-sixth <clears throat> of uh, of Chapo Trap House. Felix, welcome. Hey, Drew. Thanks for having me, man. Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Um, you want to tell us, uh, in your own words, uh, what you're here to talk with us about today?
1: So today we are talking about one of my favorite subjects, Metal Gear Solid, but Specifically, as Trevor has told me, from a theoretical standpoint about whether the games are sort of a jingo, pro-war, war fetishization games, as many of the great canonical World War II and then later uh, generalized warfare games are from the West, or if it's a protest game. My opinion, my I think Metal Gear Solid is... As a series, it has one of those things that you can that you see in all great fiction. You see it in The Sopranos. You see it. You see it in uh, in The Wire. Or whatever you know, and other non prestige TV things, where mm, I'd say a plurality of the audience enjoys them on the surface level. Like so, the Sopranos. People love it when they they tell funny jokes and they get laid and they they shoot people have cool fights and with uh with metal gear it's something similar where there are these beautiful dramatic set pieces uh especially in the last two installments of the series uh these incredibly dramatic scenes of warfare and infiltration and espionage and it's you know, it has this very anime over the topness that people really like, and these very memorable characters. And the gameplay is thrilling and always has been. The first game was incredibly cutting-edge at the time. And going into the last one, the last of the series for now, Metal Gear Solid Five, m- maybe the greatest stealth game I have ever played in my life. Incredible, seamless, fun, whether you're doing shootouts, you're infiltrating, you're taking it slow, whatever you're doing. But it has the second level. And I think one of the tells in the second level is something that you see in these aforementioned works of art where the creator is giving you a nod that this isn't what it seems. Hmm. I think there is a central joke to the Metal Gear series that is, you know, admits the life and death seriousness, the the core anti-nuclear proliferation anti-authoritarianism message of the series, there's a joke that hinges on things, and the joke is the Metal Gears themselves. Now, Hmm. in every single game, there's a new Metal Gear coming, and it's hyped as this is going to change everything. In the games that are set during the Cold War, uh, say, the Shadagohad in Metal Gear Solid 3, it's brought to us as this will give the hardliners a push to take over the Soviet government, and it will totally change the balance of the Cold War because it can, unlike uh, unlike a silo-fired ICBM, it's a mobile tank with its own defense system, and it can fire from wherever, it can't be traced. Holy shit, you know, this hardline faction has a hold of it. They've been secretly funding it in Metal Gear Solid, one, we have a similar type of thing, except it's a rogue contention who's gotten this. In Metal Gear Solid 2, it's the, it's the seizure of, A, the Metal Gears that are purposed, not equipped with nukes, but are purposed to hunt down the Metal Gear Rex that everyone has a blueprint for now. And then the Arsenal gear, which is so powerful for its manipulation of information. But the central joke in all these is that they're always taken down. By a single guy with a rocket launcher. Maybe he has right. some help, as Solid Snake did, from Gray Fox in Metal Gear Solid 1. But still, that's only two people taking down what is supposed to be an unkillable weapon. And I think that's a very clever joke about military R&D. About, think about all these bloated, insane pork barrel projects that don't even return that much employment but are just mostly paying the salaries of executives and uh, and lobbyists and other bag men, things like the F-35, stuff of that nature. It's a joke that we we put so much stake into creating these weapons for these conflicts that no one in their right mind would ever want us to happen, that we should be working to prevent from happening, that we would ever have a conflict where we're going to be having dogfights between modern fighters to establish air supremacy you know that would be a war against china or russia except we put literal trillions of dollars into
0: that event and
1: it turns out these things don't work that well the f-35 is
0: kind of a piece of shit as are many of these other right that's that that's the that's the massively expensive one that they basically decided like was like just not didn't work yes
1: yes these the point is these are dangerous weapons and they play into very dangerous motives and ideologies but the military industrial complex is so bloated and contradictory it's a it's a sick man of an institution that it just takes a determined guy with a rocket launcher at the end of the day every time
0: yeah it's really interesting cuz like i was uh, you know in 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 prep for talking with you like, it, it sort of speaks to two things. So in prep for talking with you, I wasn't replaying the games. I was rewatching the intro cinematics. Um, you know, in a lot of ways, I remember two things about Metal Gear when I was growing up. And the one was when Metal Gear Solid came out, what you said, like how revolutionary it was. I remember my friends talking about it and just like being kind of like I was, you know, in tune with games at that point, And I just had never heard of anything like it. Um and, like, there were a lot of games that were supposed to be like that. Like, I remember Parasite Eve was supposed to be like that, and it really wasn't. But Metal Gear Solid was, like, the one that really changed everything. Um, and then in Metal Gear Solid 2, like, my, my, my buddy who was, like, super into the Metal Gear Solid games would just, like, go on and on about how important that, like, opening cinematic with Snake and the Rain is with, like, the um, the Harry uh, – oh, uh, who's the composer?
1: Oh, Harry Gregson um, Williams.
0: Yeah, Harry Gregson Williams in the background and, and just, like, you know, the, the the over-the-topness of it. And so I went back and watched them a little and really, like, all I could think about, you know, watching the one from two and then watching five, obviously it's different. And in two, it's a much more sort of heroic intro and in, in the intro to Ground Zeroes, it's the introduction of, like, the main villain and just, like, the the abnegation of humanity in the face of war. But in both instances, like, the first instance it's Snake and, and at the end Raiden... Um, and it's like it's like you know one man against the, all the odds. And in the second one, it's like one man is the key to like this overarching impossible organization. Um, and you're right. I mean, even like looking at it as an adult now, I'm thinking like you know the the complexity of the plot and the complexity of the of the um, conspiracy behind the plot is like that's the point. Like it's funny. It's it's it is a dark joke.
1: Yeah, and the the stuff that we can, you know, when I put it as a kid, I I knew that a lot of it was stuff about, you know, imperialism and the prolifer- proliferation and the military-industrial complex, but I still found myself, you know, worshipping Snake and then Big Boss as these incredible heroes. But when I went back and played Metal Gear Solid 2 especially, you see, this is another great joke of the series, that Let's go all the way back to Big Boss. Big Boss was never really Big Boss. When we finally see Big Boss outside of, you know, like, uh, a few pixels and some dialogue boxes as we did in the original games, he's confused, he's sad, he's hurt. He's just constantly at mercy of this mother-like figure. And later as we play Peace Walker, then Ground Zeroes, and especially Five, we find out Big Boss was never Big Boss. Hmm. And in Metal Gear Solid 2, we find out Solid Snake was never really Solid Snake. No one was really anyone because they were either going you know, putting on their own ruse as Snake or as Big Boss does in uh, Phantom Pen. They were sort of purposed predestined into this role as big boss was into the role of boss after the events of three, they were, you know, they were at the right place at the right time. As Solid snake refers to, to the events of shadow Moses. When we see him again in middle gear, solid two, we encounter his ride and all, he tells us directly, you know, there's no such thing as a legend. It's someone's memory. And if you, you, there's a lot of very key dialogue between the Emmerichs, in that game later on and do you remember when they're talking about when Raiden and Emma Emmerich are talking about DNA and Raiden says well of course you know yes. we we have this you know we, uh, we we have these we have this information these researchers have verified it and, and Emma goes What, have you counted them yourselves? Have you looked at individual DNA strands? If you change what the original thing is that they're lying about, you'll never even have the... You don't even know what the truth is to compare it to the lie. And that's Snake. Snake commits heroic acts in in the canon of Metal Gear Solid 1. The correct ending is that he saves Meryl. But he happened to be... You know, nothing was as it seemed he ended up not doing what he thought he was going to do. He acted as valorously as he could, but as he points out, he's also just a hired killer. He doesn't know how to do anything else. So how much of a hero is he? And what do you compare him to? And what is he supposed to be in this context where nothing is true because we have no reference point. We live in this sort of in this flooding of information that no one actually controls. The patriots couldn't really keep they couldn't keep racks from getting out there they sowed the seeds of their own destruction in the same way that any deep state grows like an infection it also sows the seeds of its own destruction by becoming so Byzantine and
0: insane and having so many moving parts in its plans but yeah no I think I think that's right like you know you even think about like like, the news of the, of the day with, like, uh, Comey getting fired, James Comey getting fired, um, which, since I'm not going to put this out today, it's going to date this episode, but that's okay. Um, but, like, I mean, you think about, like, the the lack of understanding one actually has as to what that does to a structure like the FBI or, like, what exactly that would mean to something like the FBI. You understand sort of, like, the the immediate kind of, like, uh, uh, cruelty or, or um, arbitrariness of the, of the act. But, like, in terms of next man up in terms of like okay how does this affect the structure of like various ops happening all around us all the time it, it you're right it's byzantine it's not it's it's gone from secret to almost like a double blind like the left hand doesn't know what the right's doing and that ends up being like again as you say like just part of like its own um self-abnegation
1: yeah and that metal gear solid too it's, if you go back and play it now with the expectation of what we expect in controls and features in a modern stealth game, you'll find it lacking in some ways unless you have a particular affection for the game. But I really do think it is the key to the entire series. The prequels, Absolutely. and it informs the prequels more than the prequels inform it. The It is entirely about uh, identity, it, it, the fungibility of identity, the malleability of ourselves, and it was so ahead of its time it came out you, you know it came out in 2002 and it was so ahead of its time because you know our vision of a totalitarian state and their control of information at that point was restricting everything it was creating a choke point where very little information could emanate out and you could only you could only get a little bit and it was all filtered through them and you, you were just in the dark about everything. It was sort of, you know, the Orwell 1984 vision of what the uh, uh, of what authoritarianism is. But right. this was so ahead of its time because it saw the crisis of too much information, the crisis of, you know, it's like if you were sailing and you, you set your sail just maybe two degrees off than you would have originally. You end up, you sail long enough you were so far fucking beyond that point you don't even know how to get back yeah. and so it puts forth this ai and information system where there is no truth to begin with it's slightly altered just enough but there's just information all over the place and there's so much to consume there is so little of life that is certain anymore that there is no such thing as truth anymore and how can you how can you Know who you're rebelling against. How can you know what you're agitating towards? I mean, the S- solid snake knows more than anyone, almost besides Ocelot in that game. And even he doesn't know. He didn't. Uh, he did We don't find out until the end that the Patriots are all dead. That this is an AI system. Ocelot knows more than anyone, but he has to literally become insane to manipulate the system as he did which he does in four yeah
0: it's it's fascinating too because like a lot of what i like to think about with kojima i i know this is like i have this weird uh um fetish or or quirk with um with game uh, uh series like this if i come to them late and i came to metal gear solid late like i like to play the first game in the series first um and like sometimes i'll go back too far uh, and so I remember when I was in college, I played a ROM of the, the of Metal Gear, like the the NES game. And I don't know if you've bothered playing through that or not. Um, oh, it, the, it's, yeah, it's, I
1: played an emulator of it
0: once. Yeah, it's beyond clunky. Um, but what's what's fascinating about watching Kojima grow from that um, and it's becoming even more interesting as I've learned more about him. But like, you know, thinking about Kojima as like sort of like an auteur starting with that you have the seeds of of the the extraordinarily complex kind of um and i find it convincing uh, uh framework you're you're laying out there um but i mean ultimately the original metal gear is just like a twilight zone episode like you're following big boss's orders the whole time and then at the end you find out big boss was the was the bad guy all along um and, you know, it's just like it's it's just a classic kind of Twilight Zone or James Patterson or Tom Clancy kind of turn where like, oh, you know, what what you thought was true wasn't true. Um, but then like he, he, he does the MSX game, uh, the the original um, Metal Gear Solid, and then he does um, Snatcher uh, on. I don't even remember what Snatcher was on. I've never played it. Uh, I'm I'm fascinated by it, but I've never played it. It's a totally cool game, and it, it's very frustrating. Um, it's, it's much more like a visual novel than anything else is produced. But Snatcher gets at like Snatcher basically takes that kind of hokey, you know, uh, weird twist ending and makes it like and actually kind of infuses real world politics into it by way of like AI and robots in a way that doesn't look anything like Metal Gear Solid. Um, but it's fascinating to watch him take something that is just a germ early on and a germ he's like admittedly not happy with. And like mature it up through until he gets to something like, you know, Metal Gear Solid 2, Metal Gear Solid 5, like all of these sort of high watermarks in the series where his vision actually like takes a step forward or evolves into something different. Um, I don't know how often you see that in video games.
1: Yeah, well, very rarely someone gets as much time with one thing as Kojima did. Oh, that's but I, I also think, though, that he's... He's an unusual mind for games. He's he's a very strange person, but he he's kind of lost in that sea of information. When you pay when you play Metal Gear Solid Five, it's as I said an incredible game, and parts of the plot I really love, but it's very clearly unfinished, and most mm-hmm. of that is a problem problems with uh, Konami itself. But it's also like he just... You can tell that he got so into the 80s theme that he, he gets lost at certain points.
0: That's interesting. I mean, it's interesting because, like, he... You know, you can you can draw parallels, too, with the kind of, like, governmental uh, bloat, too, because by the time Kojima's doing, like, the later Metal Gears, and I know that he has the falling out with Konami, but, like, I mean, by this point and by the point he's making those games, he's essentially, like in terms of uh, video game developer status, he's essentially like the thousand pound elephant in the room. Like if you get him, you know, you're going to turn a profit, uh, which is of course why he sets out on his own. But like, he's also so temperamental, so seemingly arbitrary. So like, you know, Baroque in his designs that it it, like, it becomes sort of like this, this faith that you have to have in him that like, okay, yeah, he's going to produce something good. Um, And him getting lost just seems like such a, such an interesting way for that to kind of crumble.
1: There's a very interesting uh, reflection of art w- in life there uh, because Kojima in his motives, in his grand vision, in what he wants to the game to be, and even sometimes when you you first play them as people did Metal Gear Solid 2. I remember many people hating Metal Gear Solid 2 because they hated that they were fooled and had to play as Raiden, but the oh, yeah. farther they get from it, the more the general consensus becomes this is brilliant. This is the most brilliant game ever, this predicted our modern age. And in a sense I think Kojima is closest to Ocelot in that way. Mm. Because the entire time you see Ocelot, you go, Well none of none of his motives really make sense unless you ascribe that he just likes to hurt people or something or that he just likes to be able to change the world around him, but the farther you go, you go. Oh, I see, I see what he wanted, and it's not a, immediately apparent. And Kunami itself, Kunami is, as any corporation or large institution, is close to the Patriots. Making the Patriots an AI system, the GWASI system, is such a, a an interesting way of explaining that institutional super growth and rot that it is literally removed from any human characteristics, that the only reason it exists is to perpetuate itself. And I think that's an interesting right. commentary on dispersion of responsibility and the, the, what ends up as just uselessness of these institutions where all they do is justify their, their, their existence as the CIA or anything does. and, so that little interplay and they but they needed each other kojima needed their resources they needed kojima's kojima's abilities to generate money and it ended up being a very odd reflectory thing
0: yeah and you think about like the um the way that like even thinking about, like, the term Patriots, right? I doubt at this point in time just because it hadn't really grown into that sort of cottage industry, but it's ironic or or sort of prescient in the way that it predicts games like, you know, the Call of Duty series or the Battlefield series. Like, I had someone ask me the other day um, uh, if if I was going to play the new Call of Duty, and, like, I haven't played a Call of Duty in a long time. Um, Not because, like, I'm uninterested in them, but just because, like, I feel like I've played a lot of them already. Um, But, like, You know, they were saying, oh, it's anti-war or tries to be, like, you think a game could be anti-war. And there's just, like, you know, in a certain way, it strikes me that, like, those are just repetitions. They're their own sort of self-proliferation. And so, like, in the back of your mind, you're always thinking, like, is this game... I touched a little bit on this in a previous episode, um, but, like, is this game actually doing anti-war to do anti-war? Like, is this a statement it's making? Or is this just, like, it's understanding that it has to change things up in order to keep selling games? Um, in order to perpetuate itself? Like, is it actually saying something about humanity or is it just like a an algorithm? I think, um, well,
1: first, that's an interesting point. I mean, those, the Call of Duty games are like, it's like if the Patriot AI training programs or virtual reality training programs were just things that we could buy, more or less. I mean, right. we later found out that the, you know, the army was using it for recruitment in a lot of cases. But uh, I think they're less about war than people might imagine just looking at it head on. You know, it is a game about war. They say a lot about war. They talk a lot about the uselessness of war itself, even though we do love these characters because of their participation and accomplishments in war. I think some of its anti-war commentary is the commentary on those players. It builds these player these these characters up rather, and m- makes us love them uh, mm. because of their idiosyncrasies, but also the really cool things that they do. You know, we saw more of that as they began to master the the, the, the art and technology in those cutscenes more, especially those CQC scenes in Metal Gear Solid Three. But right they build them up and then they they show you the characters to be essentially powerless. They're pawns of this sort of invisible bloodless organism of a deep state. They're fools in the end in a lot of cases and they're they're not themselves. They're only they only get to be, a lot of what we we think is so cool about them just turns out to be them doing exactly what they were purposed to do by this distant group of elders and these vastly unaccountable institutions. I mean, what are we, what are we told at the beginning of the primary part of Metal Gear Solid 3? The CIA is going to kill us if we fuck this up. What do we see at the end? You know, the fix was always in. They just wanted, they wanted big boss to do this, to kill the boss. What do we see at the end of the series? It turns out that you know Skullface was just following Big Boss around, cleaning up after him. Hmm. You know, wh- how much of this was real? Was Big Boss the only hope? Were they training him to to, to replace Boss to be this hero, uh, this icon, a, uh, someone they could depend on? So when they could even sacrifice
0: like they did the boss, what was the point of all this? Right. We'll never really know. And I guess that's that's like kind of the point, right? Like, so I, I two things come up from that. But the first is kind of like a, a garden path. So I'll, I'll just get it out of the way. I remember a lot of the so when you say like people were mad about Metal Gear Solid 2 when it came out, you know, one of the things I remember is totally that Raiden thing. People felt duped. Um, I remember that vividly. And then also people were mad about the plot. Like I remember it was back when I read like Penny Arcade, um, which I mean, thank God I grew out of that. Um, But um, I remember they made a comic where they tried to like draw the plot line or something like that. It was like, the main joke was like, this doesn't make sense. Um, And like, ultimately it feels like a, a ridiculous comment at this point where you're just like, of course it doesn't make sense. Like that's kind of the, that's the idea, right? Like, like what deep state, like, when we get declassified deep state information, it doesn't make any less sense than the conspiracy theories right. in, in the real world. Right. I, so, like, yeah, why would you? Why would it ever make sense?
1: Yeah, you know, read the church report. The church report is, you know, an uh, amazing thing to read. The The Senate report, Special Subcommittee on Assassinations and Indulgence by Senator oh, Frank Church sure. in, uh Idaho, one of the last great western lefties but it revealed a lot of really creepy stuff that we did in a lot of countries during the cold war especially in south america and you were shocked. you know people at the time were shocked and disgusted but they were also going god all this all this shit we were doing is pretty stupid and a lot of it didn't work we just killed a lot of people but it didn't we didn't accomplish the grander evil goal we were going for in a lot of cases. We just didn't know what we were doing, but we had all this power to kill and prop things up and tear them down.
0: Uh, yeah, knowing that it's, like, actually people doing it that, like, are just as, I don't know, flawed and inefficient as the rest of us is, like, it's 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 definitely, like, you know, to, to use a cliche, like, the actual horror of the whole thing is that, um... But it, I mean, it's it's also kind of the the, as you put it, like the the salient point.
1: Yeah, and um, you know, going back to the conceit of the the Patriots as an AI system, in the end, I think that's you know, again, it's that's a great illustration of the horror that they are real people. That when we see the totality of their actions. It is like they're just AIs who only act in a way that would necessitate their continued use and dominance. And, yeah, it's it's not right. supposed to make a lot of sense at all. It's, it's, you know, when you play Metal Gear Solid 2, the theme, and this was brought to us as the theme of Metal Gear Solid 3, but I felt it was way more the theme in two because you were you felt surrounded. And the theme of two to me as the player, the playing experience seemed to be surviving. You know, when I was in Big Shell, you're just mm. the the view of the camera, you 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 feel like the entire structure is coming down on you. You are surrounded by sentries. When you especially when you're in arsenal gear and you're literally crawling through the bowels of of this horrifying Leviathan Uh, and the segments are meant, you know, named like, you know, colon a colon B shit like that. You, you, you're, you're literally naked running around, just hoping no one sees you. If they do, you hope you can kick them over a railing or something and just sprint two rooms down. You are, you've given up, finding out the whole conspiracy and you just go, shit, I just want to make it out of here. When you get to the only... When you get to the the famous part where you fight the Metal Gears, unlike in previous games, you just have to keep shooting at them until your character gives up because he can't do it anymore. He just can't. It's too many of them. These mass-produced killer mechs. Hmm. And uh, you just... You know, it's thrilling and it's an exhilarating game. And you, the viewer, wants to find out more. You never quite feel like you're finding out enough, but you, when you're playing, you're like, "Fuck, fuck, fuck!" I just want to make it out of here. I want to survive. I want to make it.
0: Yeah, it's it's really interesting. Like, uh, you know, that's that's, oh, yeah, that's great. Like the, you know, it's it's funny too. Thinking about the ways that Kojima's work has also, or I guess, like, you know maybe not just Kojima, but, like, the whole team behind it um, really kind of predicted some contemporary gaming tropes, too. Like, that kind of feeling of, of survival or exhaustion is used a lot uh, to, to really good effect these days. Um, and, like, the, the feeling of just, like, total um, uh, exposure or, or um, you know, being vulnerable. I, I think that's, like, just, like, a very well-accepted trope now. Uh, but in 2002, I mean, that was like the height of overpowered games. Yeah, like that wasn't that wasn't done. Um, I mean, maybe like Resident Evil, maybe a survival horror game. But if you were doing a survival horror game, you were doing that. Like this idea of doing both is just it. it didn't happen. And you would never
1: have had something like that in a war game at the time, really. Like,
0: oh no, absolutely. you know,
1: later, like a few years on, when they had uh, the, you know. One of the most acclaimed single campaign missions from Call of Duty, back when it was more, it was more emphasis on campaign than multiplayer, was that Point Du Hoc mission. And there is a little bit of that helplessness there, but it's just, it's sort of cheap things. Like you're experiencing this scene from first person, you can't really do anything. Then you're in the game. Then you're killing everyone, and you're just as powerful right. as you've always been. <laughs> right. You know, you can take him
0: Yeah, it's not about making choices. Yeah.
1: No, not at all. You do you do it the exact same way after that little thing. And I think it's you know, it's it's almost like Kojima was a benevolent dictator. It's like in this time, you need an enlightened despot like Napoleon or Maria Theresa because they're the only person that can holistically create that vision of a game. And, you know, get everyone to build this this theme later on the game where it's like, okay, I want you to feel powerless. But it doesn't, it's not so much that the gameplay is totally different unless in, you know, counting one stage. It's just you, you feel it. And, yeah, like, I mean, you play any war game now. Well, I've been playing Battlefield and I've been playing the campaign a bit. And there are so many of these scenes where you're supposed to feel powerless. At the beginning of the game, you run through this thing where you just get killed, where it's impossible for you to win. And it's cool and it's, you know, it's definitely way different than what we would have had a few years ago. And part of that is just, you know, the renaissance of World War 2 and even World War 1 games and sort of reimagining right. them. But it's it will never be as novel. It will never have the the holy hopeless feeling that Metal Gear Solid 2 had
0: ever. I mean there's something about like narrative there too. I yeah. Think. like I mean, it, it, you know the the I think the story in all these games gets gets maligned a lot um, by like you know people who are sort of coming after it after the fact or even people who played it at the time, it's either maligned or beloved. And you know there's something about it like structurally that's really interesting or really compelling is like so I brought th- I brought him up before and I'm sure I'll do it again, but he's you know one of the more interesting critics in terms of narrative. Um, uh, the credit, the Soviet critic Herr Lukacs says about like, um, he talks about historical fiction and he's a real big fan of, um, uh, Stevenson. He loves Stevenson and he, uh, he loves Stevenson. Cause he says like, yeah, like, look, Stevenson, the way he did it, he, um, he gives you everyone. Like he gives you all the levels in the entire world. Like you get like Kings. And you also get like peasants and they're all in the same book and they're all living in the same totality. You know, Stevenson isn't, he's like a capitalist, he's whatever. Like he doesn't like his politics, but he says like him or, um, Balzac, like you get everyone, you get every, you the whole top down system and you get to see everyone living in it as people. Um, and then he gets mad about like later, later stuff. Cause it just presents like a narrative. It's not about like individual characters or something like that. Um, and in a certain way, the way you're describing metal gear, it makes me think like, yeah, like, kojima kind of does the same thing like he gives you everyone from the top down except that once you get to the top there's like there's a hole there it's like you you sort of like instead of the king you take out the king and it's like a it's an aporia it's a it's a black hole it's nothing um except like randomness chaos or something like that um and that's just like you know even beyond gameplay like that's just such a a profoundly unsettling feeling um That I think, like, you know, unless you're making a truly, like, politically, uh, um, uh, I don't know, rough game, like, if you wanted to claim that there was no sort of, like, higher political purpose to World War II or something, which would be a risk, uh, but interesting, um, unless you're doing that, then I don't know how you're gonna replicate it.
1: Yeah, um, and, uh, you know just a little bit to that the the thing about the total, totality of all all levels in this world going back to uh MGS1 and this mm-hmm. was incredibly novel at that time because think about what games were at that time and think about what narrative was at that time to have this focus yeah. on Johnny Sasaki the guard who shit himself all the time you know it was thought of as this funny thing but it was this kind of interesting insight. You know, if you're playing the, the game in the way where you killed everyone, it was like, well, all... And all these guys are sort of like misbegotten, woeful creations of science. You later find out the genome soldiers. And they have indigestion sometimes, and they're nervous sometimes, and they're cold, and they, they know that they're loyal to liquid in this way, but it's they're really they're almost like children, and you think about all the ones that you've killed, and you it really adds to that sense of what what was the point of all this, and right. when you when you play that game also when you play any of the game well any of the Solid Snake Canon you are you always have this sense of like all right where are the adults. You know, in in, <laughs> in one, it's the colonel, and then it's the, you know, then the defense secretary takes over, and then you know, then he's been arrested. In, in two, they go even farther with this. In one, there was the sense that there were some that knew something, but everyone who you thought you could rely on, it wasn't that they were lying to you. They just didn't know. And they were hiding some things from you, as the colonel did with Merrill, but... With two, there is so much information going on that when you meet a new kid, like Armitage, when you meet Armitage, you're like, oh, fuck, this guy's an agent for the Patriots. He's going to know everything and we're going to get to the bottom of this. Maybe he's going to give me some super weapon that's going to help me out here. And right. you talk to him, you immediately bring up the hostages that the Colonel A.I. tells you about when you don't know he's an A.I., and you go, they've already right. killed a hostage. Raiden says that. And Armitage goes, what you know? What the fuck are you talking about? And you always get those <laughs> little moments in the game where someone who's supposed to present this superior authority that can you think can help you out has no idea what the fuck you're talking about because no one has the right information. And the people you think were a little bit closer or a lot closer as we thought Snake was in that chapter to knowing the full thing and just we wish would tell us Turns out they didn't know anything either. There Mm. are no adults. There are just these massive systems that we get lost in and consumed by, as we did by uh, Arsenal Gear. And there are no adults. There are no experts. There's no one really who knows that much, and there is no truth, and we are just—all we have is each other and ourselves and our survival.
0: Hmm. Yeah, and I mean it's 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 yeah no that that's that's fantastic it's 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 yeah it's it's just interesting like thinking about the ways that the game also gives you it it, it it keeps feeding you I'm trying to think of the best way to say this like tidbits of uh you know tempting uh, logics like where you're like okay um, I want to believe I was I'm thinking back to like the 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 trailer for um, or the intro for MGS2 where like you think like okay Snake's an unbeatable you know super badass and you know he's friends with Raiden and they're going to take on the world and on some level it gets at that camaraderie that you were talking about but on another level you're just like buying into the the swelling music and the imagery that Kojima and you know all of the art direction is feeding you knowing full well that it's going to fall apart or like you know I'm thinking of the way that um, Boss treats uh, Big Boss in um, in uh, uh, MGS3, like the way he looks up to her, right? Yeah. Um, and the sort of, like, figure she's supposed to cut. There's, like, a desire to want that kind of figure, like, the, to want that sort of, like, you know, leading, the, that, that sort of, like, a, a figure that tells you what is right and wrong in the world, like a god-like figure or a monarch-like figure. Um, And the game gives it to you and in every sense just knocks it down. Um, Just totally is like merciless about that.
1: Yeah. The, the, um, you know, boss, all all our encounters with boss, she just, she beats the shit out of our character and disarms him and taunts him (laughs) for knowing nothing and says, go home. There's nothing for you here. You're a boy. And, you know, you are, you are a bit intimidated by your surroundings in 3 and you go, I wish I was as powerful as her, but then when you beat her and one of the greatest gut-wrenching moments ever in a game when you have to final that fire shot, in, the final shot into her Yeah. and you find out what is more horrifying that she was just that, just some group of shadowy, smoking old men told this incredible being this super powerful warrior brilliant woman just yeah, an untold hero on the battlefield just some gross group of fat old guys said hey we're gonna fucking kill your kid and you if you don't do this and she had to do it and you, you go through the same thing that Big Boss does when he refuses to shake Johnson's hand and you go Oh, fuck, that's the world? That's the fucking world? There are no... There is nothing a hero can do to take this on. And that's... You see that seed in Big Boss's head where he goes, well, I guess I have to be the villain or people have to think I'm the villain or I have to do a lot of things that a villain would do, like have a body double, have this guy that I give amnesia to that I make myself or you know, state that I'm a rogue nation with a nuclear armed walking tank or just any number of awful things that boss does
0: the way that the game plays around with like what it knows its players are going to feel about these characters. I mean, like you said, like they're just like, they're incredible. And the way they aestheticize them is just, you want to love them. You like Ocelot. I mean, he's just an incredibly appealing character, even when he's sort of like obnoxious or evil or, insane or whatever like you want to you want to like him you want to like lionize him um and like that is all the more gut-wrenching when it falls apart it's like it's it's a million times like giving you the best possible character that you want to be and then saying like oh yeah actually like it doesn't work like it's all bad
1: yeah yeah it's it puts you through so much every game they put you through so much and i think the feeling that you're supposed to get is kind of this is this entire world this this cr- these massive superstructures are so fucking evil and make me feel so fucking helpless and I don't know what I can do but I just I hate everything they stand for. I wish we had an idea of what we could replace them with but this is this is so disgusting that it can it can build up these individuals and make us think all these things about them, and then rip them apart or show us that they were never there to begin with or were never were what we thought they were. They, it's I think going back to that original question: Are they lionizing war or the anti-war? I think it's if anything, this is sort of a treatise on imperialism or. Uh, yeah, you know, structures like the military industrial congressional complex or things like that it's about the inherent evil in these structures that only seek to continue themselves and the lengths they will go to the people they will consume and spit out to do it and that the the worst one of the worst things they do is they make you fight them on your terms big boss goes in to fight them and he ends up with you know, in Metal Gear Two, he ends up with child soldiers. He, he 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 ends up the entire world hating them. His story ends. His story ends with this shell of a man, in Zero, just having to pull his plug, then dropping fucking dead. And that doesn't even, you know, that doesn't. Who even knows what that leads to? Because there is nothing even to replace that to
0: Zero's world that he created. Yeah, man. Oh, that's actually, I think that's a, <laughs> I hate to even cut anything short, but I think that's a perfect ending. Um, Cause I, you know, I think like there's a way in which you have to, it, it's rare, you know, you want to, you want to resist in any sort of criticism. And I, you know, I know you feel this way too, but you want to resist in any sort of criticism to sort of like name, like great men of genius or great women of genius yeah. or however you want to do it. It's not a, you know, it's just a thing where you're just like, you don't want to say like, this person is like, you know, whatever they do is always good and whatever they say is always good because it, it ends up, you end up in like a bad situation and there's been a million times where like I'm sure you and I both, I can vouch for myself, have been uh, <laughs> like under some some bad illusions of like what is good or bad art or music or whatever just based on like loyalty yeah. to an artist. Um, so it's like risky. Um, but what I think is like, you know, it's not that Kojima is a super genius, It's it, he may be, but, like, the art works because it, it's, it's a rare video game that you actually need to, like, talk through the whole process um, to get to a seemingly simple resolution. It's very dialectical, like, not to be too heady about it, but, like, the the idea that, like, you start off saying, like, well, it's pro-war, and you say, like, well, it's anti-war, and in the end, you're just like, well, both are kind of insufficient, and in fact, like, the contradiction it produces is, like, it's anti it's anti-system. It's sort of like, and that's just such a, such a deeply interesting and, and new and novel idea that it produces just by way of like, you have to play the games. You have to talk about the games with your friends. It's like, it's a really weird meta commentary.
1: Yeah. And it's not so much that Kojima is just this untouchable genius, but it's, it speaks to the strength of holistically building this world. In a, mm. in a way that a lot of game makers don't a lot of them True just the go into it going oh i want to make something gritty or i want to you know i want to show a war really is or something half-baked like that <laughs> but it shows you know the this he's in a i'll put it this way in a series it is about in the end sort of getting drowned in information he's the one guy who can consume all that information and at least know where he's going to at least know what destination Mm. he's swimming to and it's not always perfect but it's you know it's better than anyone else almost so i'll take it (laughs)
0: yeah (laughs) definitely um so you have anything to add anything we didn't touch on no, I think that's, that's all.
1: That's, uh, that is the conversation I've been wanting to have about metal gear for a very long time. So thank you for having me.
0: Well, yeah. Thanks for having it. It's like it's the conversation about metal gear that I didn't even know I wanted to have, <laughs> but yeah, it's been, been fascinating it's been fantastic. Um, so, uh, thanks man. Um, I, I'd ask you if you wanted to plug anything, but I think everyone already knows to you know listen to chapel trap house. Um, Uh, anything beyond Chapo that you want to plug? Uh, no, no. Well, um, I have a very long
1: essay about a very, very weird story from my life that is coming out in the next Street Fight zine. So, you should definitely subscribe to to Trev's Patreon and you should subscribe to my friend Street Fight, too, because... Yeah,
0: they put out some cool, cool, cool stuff in the zine. That's That's a fantastic publication. Yeah,
1: absolutely. So, uh yeah cool i'm looking forward to just that just want to tell people to subscribe to both of those things
0: thanks man um well yeah please come on anytime and if you know um uh if that uh kojima game with norman Reedus is any good um we'll, we'll talk about it here i'll have you back on. be my pleasure um yeah. all right man well yeah anytime and uh thanks again and thanks for listening to uh, no cartridge audio